At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. This morning, friends, we are going to be opening God's Word and continuing a sermon series that we began uh, several weeks ago called The Lord of the Earth, looking at Revelation chapters 6 through 18. Now, throughout 2022, we have been in the book of Revelation, and we have seen week after week that this is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And we have seen Jesus revealed as the Lord of the church, as the Lord of heaven, and over the last several weeks as the Lord of the earth specifically looking at the time uh, preceding the return of Christ where Jesus' sovereignty over the earth is demonstrated as the king of kings prepares to take his throne by judging the earth while giving people one last chance to repent. We've seen that in a number of different messages in this series. And today we're going to be in part five of this series looking at Revelation chapters 12 and 13. But before we look at those two chapters together, I I want to just think with you for a moment about the topic of intelligence. And when I think of intelligence, this is what I mean. Intelligence is something that is helpful in any competition or battle. It's, It's important in any kind of competition or battle. Now, you might be thinking, well, of course, intelligence, intellect is important. But I'm not talking about our smarts. What I'm talking about is information about our enemy is helpful in a number of different settings. We're familiar with that on the field of battle, and several in this room serve in our armed forces, and they're well aware of the benefit that comes when we know the habits and patterns of the opposing army, or we know where their resources are located or where their troops are stationed. That kind of intelligence is helpful related to our enemy. We also think of it in terms of athletic competition. Uh, Intel on the softball diamond is very helpful. You can imagine if somebody is going to step in the batter's box at the Women's College World Series and they know that what is coming is a fastball inside. If they know what's coming, they have a much greater chance of making contact with the ball and putting it into play. See, intelligence is helpful for us to be able to respond to opposition or respond to our enemy. Now, when I say that today, uh, I think that what we see in Revelation 12 and 13 is intel related to our enemy. God has sovereignly provided for us intelligence about who our enemy is and his patterns and his plans. Now, when I say that, some of you might be having a question mark form above your head. Enemy? What do you mean, enemy? Do we, do we really have an enemy? And the answer to that, friends, is absolutely yes. And the scripture is quite clear about that. As a matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8, that we are to be sober-minded and watchful because our adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We have an adversary who wants to take us out, and that adversary is identified as the devil or Satan himself. The same idea is something that is found in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, as the Apostle Paul writes and says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against who? Against the schemes of the devil. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So the scripture is clear for us, friends, that we have an adversary. We have an enemy, and that enemy is none other than Satan himself. Now, our scriptures, our Bible, it's full of information about God to inspire us to trust him, to have faith in him, to know him. That's the predominance of the information. But there are sections of God's word, and Revelation 12 and 13 is part of it, where we get an intelligence briefing on our enemy so that we might be prepared to stand against his schemes. And so over the next several minutes, what I want us to do is look at Revelation 12 and 13 to see how we might stand against the schemes of the enemy. We're going to see that again in chapters 12 and 13. Now, 12 and 13 is too long for me to read all of those verses, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to read chapter 12, but then I'm going to make some observations that will cover both chapters. I would encourage you, if you've not read these chapters, to spend some time later this week looking them over. I'll also be writing some more on these verses uh, on our blog this week if you'd like to go a little deeper. But let me begin by reading for us Revelation chapter 12 begins and says this, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of great eagles that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river from his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now, friends, as I read those verses, my guess is that nobody has any questions 
Everybody got all of that. So let's just close in prayer. Um, no, the, these are some complicated verses. And when you add chapter 13, there are a number of things that we have questions about. Hopefully, in the balance of our time, we'll make some sense of this. And we'll make some sense in this direction. We're going to begin by having some intel on the enemy, some intel on our enemy, some intelligence on Satan. Now, where do we see that? Well, it begins in verse 1 of chapter 12, where we get introduced to this concept with this phrase, a great sign appeared in heaven. Now, what do those words mean? The idea of a sign is also repeated in verse 3. What is this intended when it talks about these signs? Well, by saying signs, we're being introduced to a, a, a symbol that is getting ready to come. What the Apostle John sees in Revelation 12 and 13 is really a, a divine play that, that, that takes place in heaven that represents all of human history. We're going to see all of human history played out with various signs representing their true realities. So what are those signs? What are the characters in this play that are introduced? Well, the first sign that is mentioned is a woman, a woman that is described in certain ways with 12 stars and clothed in the sun and in the moon underneath. And this woman is pregnant and not just pregnant, but is ready to give birth. Now, who is this woman? Well, some would look at this woman in verse 1 and, and say that it is a description of Mary, the mother of Jesus, because the child that is to be born sure looks like Jesus. But friends, I don't think that the description in 12.1 refers to Mary specifically. I think it is a reference to the nation of Israel as a whole. And the reason why I think that is because the description that is given there of the woman is the same description that we see in Genesis 37 verses 9 to 11 talking about the nation of Israel with the moon and the sun and the stars. All of that is present in one of Joseph's dreams in Genesis 37. And so by referring to the woman in this way, John and I believe we are intended to understand that this woman is a reference to the nation of Israel. So that is the first sign, that is the first character that we see in this divine play in Revelation 12. But who's the second character? Who's the second sign? Well, the second sign is described as a red dragon with horns and heads and crowns. And that is enormous, that when it swings its tail, a third of the stars fall from the sky, speaking of its influence. Now, who is this red dragon? Well, we don't have to guess at this one. The scripture is very specific about it. In verse 9, it lets us know that the dragon is a reference to Satan himself. And so we have a woman who represents Israel. We have a dragon who represents Satan. And then the woman gives birth to a child. This child is none other than the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we see that because in verse 5, it talks about the child that is born will take up a rod of iron to rule the nations. And that is a very clear reference to the Messianic Psalm, Psalm 2, a reference to Jesus himself. And so we have these three main characters who are laid out for us in this divine drama for us to see. Now, when we see these three characters laid out here, I want to just ask you this question. Who looks more powerful? Who looks more powerful among these characters? Now, let me just describe them for you a little more. 
We are talking here about a woman, and not just a woman, a pregnant woman. And not just a pregnant woman, but a pregnant woman who is in the throes of giving birth. That is about as vulnerable as one could be. And then they're gonna, she's going to give birth to a child, a baby. Now, who looks more powerful, a baby and a woman giving birth or a giant red dragon with multiple horns and multiple crowns? Who looks more powerful? The dragon does, right? But friends, who is more powerful? The child. No question. And that will be one of our main takeaways from chapter 12 is the triumph of Jesus over Satan. But the chapter begins with this this play on words that helps us see vulnerability versus strength, and we are tempted to be afraid of the dragon when, in fact, the child is the one who triumphs. And friends, this is not all that different from our experience in everyday life today, isn't it? Does it ever look like evil is winning? Does it ever look like the darkness is triumphing? Yeah, our eyes play tricks on us, right? We need to go back to verses like Revelation 12 to be reminded that our eyes can deceive us because though the dragon looks more impressive, the dragon is defeated. I love what Jim Hamilton says about this in his commentary on Revelation. He says, does it sometimes seem to you that Satan has the upper hand in the struggle of the ages? Does it look like he is the one who knows how to fight to win and God always seems to pick the losing strategy? I mean, think about it. Turn the other cheek, bless those who persecute you, love your enemies, preach Christ and him crucified and not with what the world thinks is eloquent wisdom. Choose the weak things of the world. It's almost as though God shows up on the playground to pick his team, and instead of picking the guys who look like they can play, he picks the obviously inferior team. And how does it always turn out? God triumphs every time. And so the chapter unfolds, giving us some intelligence about the enemy, but all against the backdrop of his defeat. So what do we learn about the enemy inside of this chapter? Well, one of the things we learn is that Satan is, in fact, our adversary. In the original language, you know what the word Satan means? It means adversary. He is our opponent. He is trying to take us out. That's what we see in verse 9 as he is referred to as Satan. What else do we learn about him? We learn that he's not alone. He is a part of a group of rebellious angels. There are others who fell along with Satan. Satan, a created being, a created angel, rebelled against God, and with him, many other angels came down. Satan is not omnipotent. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He can't be everywhere, but he is also not alone. The other angels that have fallen with him are what we would call demons. And so we we have this picture of the third of the stars following in verse four. And then we also have the followers of Satan thrown down with him from heaven in verse nine. So he's not alone. A third thing that we learn about him is a number of titles that are given to him. Satan is called in verse nine, the dragon, the serpent, devil, and Satan. Now, when we think about these different titles, when I, when you think of a red dragon described this way, does he seem like a friendly dragon? No, this is not a friendly dragon. The color red, the size, the appearance, 
This is an aggressive, venomous opponent. This is one who wants death, not life. When Jesus was talking to his followers in John 10, he said, I have come that you might have life and might have it abundantly, but the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. The personification of the thief is Satan himself, the the dragon who wants murder and not life. Not only is he called the dragon, but he's also called the serpent. And, And so that we don't miss it, he's called the ancient serpent. What does that make you think of? All the way back in Genesis 3, it was Satan who was in the garden who tempted Adam and Eve to sin originally by twisting God's truth and inviting them to disobey him. He's the serpent. He's also the devil. We'll talk about that more in a moment. And he is Satan, our adversary. What else do we know about him? Well, we know that he is the deceiver of the world. He's the deceiver of the world. What what does Satan do? He tricks people. That's, that's what he does. He doesn't create. He tricks. He doesn't bless. He deceives. We think about the world in which we live. Does it seem like there's a lot of deception in the world? People living in, in, in cultures and in environments all over the world who are worshiping inanimate objects as God. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from the author of deception. People worshiping false religions, people believing that there is no God. Where does that mentality come from? It comes from an enemy that has deceived the world. Even commonplace understanding things get confused in our world. Where does it come from? It comes from the author of deception. Satan is a deceiver. We see that in verse 9. What else? Well, he's also an accuser. He's also an accuser. The the, the title devil, what does the word devil mean in the original? It means accuser. And in verses 9 and 10, he's called the devil, and he is the one who is the accuser of the brothers. What does it mean to say that Satan or the devil is the accuser of us? It means that he is trying to gain an audience before God and trying to tell God and remind God of all of the terrible things that we've done. You know what the devil wants to do in this moment right here? He wants to stand and try to get God's attention and say, why would you let Mark stand up there and speak for you? Don't you remember what he did? Don't you remember what he thought? Don't you remember what he said? I mean, how, why? Why would you allow that? That's what, that's what Satan does. And when we think about his role in the cosmic scheme of things. We think about his trying to accuse us and remind God of our sinfulness and our brokenness and our fallenness. That's one of the things that he does, that when we say the devil, we're talking about the one who is accusing us and reminding God of our faults and of our failures. Not only that, but he is also one who is angry. He's angry. He's not a a happy character. He is angry. He is down here upon the earth, and he's exhibiting great wrath. He is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, as we saw from 1 Peter chapter 5. We also, though, are reminded that part of the reason why he's mad is because he knows that his time is limited. Satan is aware, friends, that there will come a day when he will experience the ultimate, final, fulfilled judgment of God. And he will no longer be able to influence anything in the world. 
And that knowledge apparently has created an urgency in Satan to deceive even more as the time moves towards the return of Christ. We also see that he's experiencing this sense of rage right now, knowing that he missed a chance to take Christ out when he was on the earth. And seeing that Christ is now reigning and exalted on high, Satan has turned his focus and his ire to take out the people of God. But friends, in light of all of that, the thing that comes out most clear in chapter 12 is that he is defeated. Now, if you're taking notes and you're writing down those nine things that we just learned about Jesus, I want you to underline about 10 times this last one. If you are are, are doing this on some kind of electronic device, I want you to highlight it and bold it and make it 10 times the font size. I want you to have it flashing in front of you. Why? Because this is the chief message of this section. He is defeated. He is defeated. You know, it's, it's interesting. When I preach, I, I put things on the screen, and often I will, I will, I will try to make sure, I, I don't do this perfectly, but I try to make sure that when I reference Jesus or God, I use a capital letter in the pronouns that are found there. Why? Because he is exalted and lifted high. Very intentionally today, friends, I put in lowercase these he's. Why? Because we are talking about one who is defeated. He's absolutely defeated. Now, where is his defeat found in these verses? Well, his defeat is found in his inability to take out Christ in his first advent, in his first coming. You know, in in verse 4, right before we get to verse 5, the, the woman, Israel, is getting ready to deliver her Messiah into the world. Mary is going to give birth to Jesus. And what is Satan doing in that moment? It says in verse 4, he is, he is ready, he is crouched, he is ready to take him out. How did Satan try to take Jesus out at his birth? Do you remember? Matthew chapter 2 tells us the story. He inspired Herod to pass an order to kill every male child in Bethlehem. But did it work? No. God rescued Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, took them off to Egypt. They come back. When Jesus gets ready to start his earthly ministry, what, what, what happened? Satan tries to tempt him. But was he successful? No. Jesus defeated Satan in the temptation. And then we go all the way through Jesus' life and ministry. Jesus would be preaching, he would be doing miracles, and people would come and try to kill him prematurely. But what happened every time? Jesus was able to walk and leave the crowd because his life was going to run its full duration of everything God had intended. And ultimately, when Jesus goes to the cross and dies, even then, Satan's defeat is shown as Jesus raises from the dead and ascends to heaven and sends his spirit to empower his church, to take the good news of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. Friends, when we look at verse 5, what we see is all of the church age summarized there. It says that Israel gave birth to this male child, Jesus, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, but but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. The entire ministry of Jesus is summarized there just in those words. He was born, and then he went up into heaven, and Satan, you lost. Now, who else defeats Satan? Not just Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, but also the angelic armies. 
I love what it says in verses 7 and 8 where Satan and his demons are defeated by Michael and the angels of heaven. And you know what? It's, it's not a close fight. God didn't need to intervene. God didn't have the angels occupy Satan and the demons for a while, and then he stepped in. No, they were able to win the victory alone. It's a reminder that he is defeated, both in Jesus' life and ministry, but also in the angelic realm. But who else defeats him? Well, also, God the Father defeats him. And we see this in the protection that God the Father provides to his people during the last seven years before the return of Christ. See, Satan knows that his time is short, and in that time, that future time before Jesus returns, Satan will be ramping up his efforts, we'll talk about this more in a moment, to take out the people of God, but God will protect his people. He will give them wings to fly away to the desert. This is not literal wings, but he will provide a way of passage for them to go, and God will provide for them, and he will protect them from the attacks of Satan in those last days. And so we're reminded again that that he loses there as well. But a fourth defeat that we see inside these verses is he is also defeated by the followers of Jesus. He can be defeated, friends, by you and I as well. And we see that inside of these verses. Now, before we look at how we find our victory over Satan, I want to just, just think for a moment about, just do some quick math on this, right? This means that Satan is what? Oh, and... Four. Again and again and again, his defeat is talked about inside of this chapter. What does God want us to know in this intelligence briefing is that he is greater than Satan. Now, how do we defeat the devil? If, if Jesus' followers can defeat him, how do we defeat him? Well, we need to remember that when we say devil, we're talking about an accuser. We're talking about an accuser. And what is he doing? He's accusing us before God. He's drawing back to mind our faults, failures, and sins and trying to discredit us before God. Now, if we were to think that there is one standing beside us who is, is, is trying to make the case against us before God, how are we prone to respond? Well, oftentimes we're prone to respond by making excuses. But friends, that's not a winning strategy. And yet we try it all the time, don't we? When we get confronted with our own wrong, often we'll want to respond this way. Well, I'm not that bad. I mean, yeah, I, I did that, but that's not that bad. Or we want to say something like this. Yeah, I did that, but I didn't, it's, what I did is not as bad as what this other person did. You know, what I did is not as bad as what Hitler did. Now, if your excuse before God is, I'm not as bad as Hitler, you've got a bad strategy, Okay. But this is what we're tempted to do. We're tempted to, in the face of accusation, make excuses or even make an excuse like this. I, I've done a lot of good things too. Yes, I, I did that. Yes, I have sinned in that way, but I've done a lot of good things. I've, I've, I've given money to the poor. I've helped those in need. I go to church every week. See, we're tempted to make excuses based on our own performance. But in the face of an accusation before God, how do we really win? How do we really stand? Well, these verses tell us in such a beautiful way. We win by the blood of the lamb. You know what happens if, if Satan is accusing me before God? You know what the, what, what the way to, to stand in that day is? Say, yes, I have sinned and fallen short of you, God. 
but Jesus died for that sin. If you are here today and you are living under the weight and the guilt of your own sin, friends, have an understanding that the only way to respond to survive the judgment of God is to have the blood of Jesus connected to your sin. We win by responding in falling under the blood of the Lamb. But not only that, but we see that we will also win by the word of our testimony. It's not enough just that Jesus died, but we also must place our faith and trust in it. We also must begin to follow him in faith. And as we think about that, we're standing and finding our life not on the basis of our excuse, but on the basis of who Christ is and his transformation that is occurring inside of our lives. We win by the blood of the lamb. We win by the word of our testimony. And also we win when we realize that we do not need to cling on to our bodies. See, what can Satan do to us? Well, he could have us killed. It could happen, right? There are people that have been martyred for their faith since Jesus was on the earth. And because of our faith in Christ, we could be killed. But after we're killed, you know where we are? In the presence of God forever. How do we have the courage to stand in the face of opposition? We have courage to stand even in the face of opposition by not loving our earthly lives, but being willing even to lay those over in light of the blessing that is to come. Now, friends, as I say that here today, many of you, this is an encouraging reminder of how we can stand in the face of this opposition. But for others of you who are here today, um, you you are here today and you are still thinking of approaching God on the basis of one of these excuses or something else. My strong appeal to you this morning is to not go another day having your plan for eternity being a bad plan. But instead... Look to the blood of the Lamb and place your faith and trust in Him. And if you do that, then we will be a part of those who see victory even in the face of accusation. Now, we've seen inside of chapter 12 intel on our enemy. But when we get to chapter 13, what we see is intel on the enemy's plans. Intel on the enemy's plans. Now, when we get to chapter 13, we're, we're talking about the events that Satan will orchestrate upon the earth during the last seven years before Christ's return. If you've been with us throughout our study, we've talked about this often, but we're not talking about the era in which we currently live. We're talking about an era that is yet to come. So at some point in the future, there will be a time on the earth where Satan will be living out the events found in chapter 13. That's not now, but it is later. And one of the things we've also seen inside of our study is that one of the things that will precede those end events is the rapture of the church. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not be present on the earth for the events of chapter 13. 
And yet it is helpful for us to see this intelligence briefing about what Satan will be doing in the days leading up to the return of Christ. So what do we learn inside of these verses about the enemy's plans? Well, one of the things that we need to do is we need to be reminded of what we saw in chapter 12 to set us up for what we see him doing on the earth. The first thing we need to be reminded of is that Satan is defeated and his time is short. Satan has already lost and he understands that judgment is coming and he understands that he has a short amount of time to still exert some influence upon the earth. And so that's where he is found in chapter 12, verse 12, exhibiting that influence that he has on the earth, angry that his time is short. But one of the other things that we see inside of these verses is that Satan also is taking advantage of these last days by turning his wrath upon the nation of Israel. Now, we see that in chapter 12, verse 17, when it says that he is furious with the woman and he went off to make war against her. Remember again, if the church is removed through the rapture and God reinitiates a plan to work through Israel to take the gospel to the ends of the earth during the last days, Israel will be in the crosshairs of Satan once again. And Satan will be raging against Israel in these last seven years. Well, how will he do that? Well, we'll see that in just a moment. But one of the things that I think it's important for us to see in this setup is this. This is going to be a terrible time to be on the earth. Not only will God be pouring out judgment on the earth through the the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, as we have seen in previous weeks, but also Satan will be working upon the earth, angry and furious and trying to take out the people of God in the days before Christ's return. So it's it's an awful time for the earth. Well, how does Satan exhibit this influence in the last days? Well, one of the things that happens is that he is going to be working through people. Just as he worked through Herod during the time when Jesus was born to try to take Jesus out, and just as he worked through Pontius Pilate to sentence Jesus to the cross, so also Satan here is going to be at work through people on the earth in the end times. One of the people that that he'll be at work through is someone that we know throughout Scripture as the Antichrist. Now, the Antichrist is a world leader, a political leader, who is going to step on the stage in the last seven years before Christ's return and will lead people in a terrible direction. Now, what do we learn about this Antichrist in the first ten verses of chapter 13? Well, we learn that he's described as a beast from the sea. This is a reminder that he is someone not from the nation of Israel. He's going to be someone of Gentile background, non-Jewish. What else do we know about him? We know that he will exhibit a number of different characteristics that will be reminders of past worldly regimes, places like Babylon and Rome. He's described in verses 2 and 3 as someone who has like feet like a leopard and mouth like a lion and all of these kinds of things. All of those references tie back to the descriptions of Daniel 7 of various world empires from the time of Daniel through the time of Jesus. So we see this world leader who is going to come on the stage and is going to channel some of the worst of the world leaders of history. What else do we know about him? Well, we know that he's going to deceive people into following him. Through some sleight of hand and trickery, he's going to have people convinced that he is really special and he's the only one who can provide relief to an embattled world. 
We see that in verses 3 and 4. But it's not enough that he would just have this influence. He actually wants people to worship him as a God. And so he's going to utter various blasphemous things and set himself up as one who should be worshipped. And we see this in verses 5 and 6. He will establish a, a rule upon the world that will be over the whole world, not just a region, but over the whole world. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation will be influenced and under the authority for a time of this world leader. And he will take advantage of that time to put some persecution upon the nation of Israel and the people of God for about three and a half years. And this will impact everyone and the only people who will be able to resist his influence will be those who are defined as the elect, those who have maintained their faith in God. So in the time that is the end, Satan's plan will be to inflict his influence upon the earth through a world leader known as the Antichrist. But beginning in verse 11, we see a second person that he's working through, and that person is the false prophet, the false prophet. And we see that in verses 11 through 18. In these verses, we find out that this false prophet is going to be pointing people to worship the Antichrist. It's not going to be a veiled agenda. It's going to be, hey, world, you must worship the Antichrist as God. He's going to set up an idol for people to worship that idol of the Antichrist, to worship it as God. And he will place that idol in the very temple in Jerusalem. And not only will he establish this system, but he will require it of all upon the earth. If anyone does not uh, worship the Antichrist as God, they will not be able to conduct any business. They will not be able to do anything, and they will find themselves marked people in the world for persecution, judgment, and maybe even death. See, this is how Satan will be influencing the world in the last days, working through the Antichrist, working through the false prophet. But when we get to the way that the false prophet will be enforcing this plan, we find that he will be enforcing it through something that you've probably heard about, and that is the mark of the beast. When we look at Revelation chapter 13, verses 16 through 18, we have this reference to the mark of the beast. And, you know, when we we see that, you might go, oh, that's where this is found. Yeah, it's, it's found right here in Scripture. That there would be some kind of a symbol given a number that would be attached to people, and you would have to have this symbol attached to you in order to be able to conduct business. And the only way to get the symbol would be to worship the Antichrist as God. Now, In the last two years, I've had more questions about the mark of the beast than in the rest of my life combined. And so I just want to humbly share with you my thoughts about what this is talking about as it relates to us today. As it relates to the mark of the beast, a few thoughts. The first one is timing is key. These events, as we've talked about, relate to a future time. The last seven years before Christ returns to the earth. It is not the era in which we currently live. These are events that happen on the other side of the rapture of the church. There are those that would disagree with me, but as I've taught through this, uh, it's, a, it, it's consistent with when my teaching that, that these events are happening after the removal of the church from the earth. What that means is 
The mark of the beast is not operative right now. We don't have to be afraid that the mark of the beast is attached to us in this moment. Timing is key. A second thing is that this mark of the beast is something that the false prophet is going to use to reward those who worship the Antichrist and to punish those who don't. It's not something that's just going to be happenstance. It's not something that you're going to stumble into. It's something that's going to be very clear and very overt. If there is someone who is inviting you, you have to do this in order to conduct business and in order to, uh, in order to get this, you're going to have to worship a person as God, then that's what's happening in Revelation 13. Again, that is not something that is happening in the world today. I think it's interesting that this mark of the beast is really a mockery of the seal that God gives to his people. Remember back in Revelation 7, God places a seal on his followers. We see Satan twisting that and providing some kind of a different seal and symbol here. But the last thing I think it's important for us to see is this. Though these things are relating to a yet future time, I do think that technology and trends today are making the kind of thing that is talked about in Revelation 13 more possible. How could you have something happen in the world to be able to control the entirety of the world's population from being able to buy and sell? Well, in, in many years ago, that would be very hard to pull off on a global scale. But it's not as far-fetched today. And it just reminds us that these events are moving towards the end. These events relate to a yet future time, but the stage is being set even today. I love what J. Vernon McGee says. He says, I would suggest that we not waste our time trying to identify a person by this number. Instead, we need to present Jesus Christ that we might reduce the population of those who have to go through the great tribulation period and who will therefore know what the number of the beast is. Friends, may we see in these descriptions of the end, these horrible descriptions of the end, a reminder and an impetus for us to share our faith boldly and openly today. Would you pray with me? Father God, thank you so much for just this briefing that you have given us in your word that reminds us that you are indeed the victor and that though we have an adversary, that you have taken care of that adversary. Lord, may we be a people who stay on the alert and stay close to Christ, people who allow your word to keep us from the deceptions of our enemy, but people who also find our hope and life in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you that you have made a way for us to gain victory. Thank you that you have made a way for evil to be taken care of in the end. And we give you praise and glory as a result. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.